welcome to Faith. Again, uh, whether you join us in person, whether you join us online, my name is Mike. I am one of the pastors on staff here. And we are in the final week of a series that we have entitled Signs. And if you're going, well, gosh, I'm walking in the last week. I haven't been here for a minute or I'm new. You'll be able to track along with us just fine. All right. In this series, each week we're taking a different miracle that Jesus performed, that John recorded, and we're kind of unpacking this thing and going, hey, what does this teach us about who Jesus is and how life works? And next weekend, we're going to be starting a new series entitled Big Ten. Uh, There's an invite card for this. Hopefully, you found one on the chair when you came in. There's a digital invite card online as well. And what we're going to do in this series is we're going to spend some time working through the Ten Commandments. And here's something really important to understand as we talk about the Ten Commandments. Oftentimes, the Ten Commandments are thought of this dusty list of rules that some antiquated individual came up with to ruin all of your fun in life. And that's just kind of the reputation for the Ten Commandments. In this series, we are going to see that these are foundational principles for God's people that he gave us to help us live our best lives and to protect us from what would destroy us. And so uh, our students will be with us throughout this series. And so we are preaching this series with that in mind. And it means a couple of things. It means we're going to have some fun. It means if you're going to be stuffy, I'm going to bother you. All right, so you just, you can get, you can preemptively complain on your connection cards. You can send them to pastorjames.bride, all right, at 4fcc.org. And, um, but I want your kids and your grandkids to want to come to church on Sunday. And so we're going to do a lot of fun stuff in the midst of this series. And it's going to be good. I'm just telling you right now, it's really good stuff. So um, your job, if this is your church, your job over the course of the next week is to be praying for the person in your life who's not going to church somewhere. That person is not in your life by accident. God has them there for a reason. And so over the course of the next week, your job and mine is to be praying for that person and to look for an opportunity to give them that invite card, to send them the the digital invite and invite them to join you at some point during this series. So I want you to bring your person to mind. We're gonna pray for our people. We're gonna pray for our time in this last miracle and then we'll get started. Father, just as we take some time today to look at this last miracle that John recorded, Father, pray you would open our minds and our hearts to the truth that you were seeking to communicate through that. Just give us a heart to see the heart of Jesus. And Father, we want to just right now just in, in our own minds, we want to just name th- that person out to you. We want to pray specifically for that individual who you have in our lives. God, I want to pray for Jordan. I want to pray for Mariah. That you would please just make their hearts inclined to you. That you'd create a, just a context for just a normal, natural conversation and an opportunity to invite them out to church and for courage to be willing to do that. We just lift these people up to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, you know, throughout this series, we've been saying John's recorded these miracles and he's done so with a purpose in mind. Uh, John will tell us at the end of his book, writing about the miracles, he'll say, but these were written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. 
So John, John's going, hey, I wrote these, I, I took the time to pick out and record these specific miracles so that you would discover who Jesus is and what it means to have life in him. So each week we're taking one of these miracles, we're just kind of dissecting the thing, and we're going, okay, what's this teach us about Jesus? What's this teach us about life? Now, we're all the way at the end here, and we're looking at this last miracle today that John records in, in chapter 21 of his book. But to really appreciate what John is going to record for us in chapter 21, you have to, you have to look at some of the backstory. Was one of my favorite mentors has once said, when, something, when a job goes wrong, you go back to the beginning, right? Nobody. All right. So um, when a job goes wrong, you go back to the beginning. Thank you. All right. So uh, Vincini, thank you. Right. All right. So um, we're going to go back to the beginning for Peter. All right. Um, Luke, in his biography of Jesus' life, records Peter's call. And then, and then you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of record this journey that Peter takes to get to John 21. And so at the beginning of Luke's biography, you find Peter on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He is cleaning out his nets because he's fished all night long and he's got nothing to show for it. Look at a person next to you and tell them nothing. That was really quiet. I, some of you did not participate. Let's try that again, all right? You're in church. I can still see you, all right? Look at a person next to you and tell them nothing. Thank you. He's, he's, he's got nothing. And he's, he's, I mean, he's, he's cleaning these nets, trying to figure out, how do I go home and explain to my wife and to my kids? How's he going to go home and explain to his mother-in-law, who incidentally lives with him, Jesus, help his soul, right? Like, I got nothing after I worked all night long. Sorry, Mom, I don't know what to tell you. And he's trying to figure out how he's going to have this conversation out. Jesus comes along, and Jesus does what Jesus did. Jesus taught. And, and Jesus is teaching this crowd, and the, and the crowd's different every time, but Jesus' teaching remains the same. Jesus, when he taught, he taught like no one else. It wasn't the same dry, blowhard stuff that had nothing to do with your life that you got from the religious leaders of the day. When Jesus taught, there was this unsettling authority in what he had to say. There was power in his words. When Jesus taught, it was, like, it was like God himself was speaking to you. And so Jesus is teaching, and, and the crowd is kind of pressing up on him, and Peter is just a step off of the, the, the shoreline in his boat, and Jesus says, hey, can, can I get into your boat and teach from here and get some space between me and the people? And Peter's like, you know what? I got nothing to lose here. And maybe some of that rabbi mojo, maybe some of that God stuff will rub off on a boat and I'll catch something next time. And so Jesus steps into the boat and he teaches. But when he gets done, he looks to Peter and, and he says this. He says, now go out to where it is deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. To which Peter is thinking in his mind, okay, that is typical preacher going to tell everybody else how to do their job on top of their own, right? Like, Jesus, you can teach like nobody's business, but you clearly don't know jack about fishing, man, because this is the worst time in the world to do this. But how do you say that to a rabbi like Jesus? You don't. So instead, P Peter goes here. He says, Jesus, we worked hard all last night. Hint, hint. And Jesus, we, we, we didn't catch a thing. 
But if you say so, and you can change your mind, but if you say so, I'll let down the nets, the freshly clean nets, again. You're not relenting, are you, Jesus? Okay, so out they go. And Peter lets down the nets. And if you know the story, you know they catch fish. Like they catch, you know, fish so your nets are busting. You call your other partners over in a boat. You fill up both boats till they're sinking. What is my mother-in-law going to say about this kind of fish, right? And then it dawns on Peter. This isn't a fish thing. This isn't a money thing. This isn't a business thing. This is a God thing. Like all of that power. All of that unsettling authority, all of that God stuff, it is pulsating out of the person of Jesus in that boat. And Peter becomes overwhelmed. He is just undeniably aware of how broken his life is. And he finds himself on his knees in a pile of fish saying this to Jesus. He says, Lord, please leave me. I'm too much of a sinner to even be around you. My life is so full of junk, I don't have any business being in the same boat as you. But Jesus says this to Peter. He says, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, he left everything and followed Jesus. See, in this interaction... Jesus invites Peter into a new sense of giftedness, into a new call. Jesus knows, Peter's got the gift of gab. This man can talk. And when people, when he talks, people listen. They, they will do what you say, Peter. So Peter, I want you to quit fishing for fish. I want you to fish for people. Your job now is to help people come into a relationship with me. And then, then after this, Mark tells us that Jesus said the magic words to Peter. He says to him, come follow me. In first century rabbinic culture, that was a rabbi's way of inviting a young man to come and be his disciple. It was a rabbi's way of communicating to that young man, hey, I believe you have what it takes to be like me. Come and follow me and learn how. And so Peter and and the rest of the guys, they leave everything to do just that. And for three years, they follow Jesus. They go everywhere Jesus goes. They see everything that Jesus does. There is ministry that takes place that they are a part of over the course of three years. Like more than we are more likely to, to see in a lifetime ourselves. It's an amazing time for Peter. Kind of becomes Jesus' top disciple. But at the end of three years, things start getting weird. We've been saying throughout the series, the disciples expect a certain kind of Messiah. They they expect a Messiah who's going to come and take over the world. He's going to set up Israel as a dominant world power, and they're going to rule the world with him. But the further into three years they go, the more consistently and frequently Jesus keeps telling them, no, 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 that's not how Messiah works. Messiah's going to be betrayed. He's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. They're going to do unspeakable things to him. They're going to crucify him. Messiah is going to die. And the disciples are like, Jesus, what Bible are you reading anyway? 
That's not how Messiah works. He'll, he'll say this to them at the beginning, and they, they're, they're like, die? What does he mean, die? I mean, it's plain language. They just can't wrap their brains around it. And even when they begin to pick up the pieces, they still don't fully understand. In fact, there's this, this conversation, this critical conversation that takes place between Jesus and Peter. And, and Jesus is talking about how you know, he's going to be you know, betrayed and arrested and crucified. And then he begins to talk about how his disciples are going to respond to that. And he quotes the Old Testament at them. He says, he says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep are going to scatter. In other words, you will all fall away. And bold, you know, you know, speak first, think sometime later, Peter. He gets all wound up. And he's like, no, 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 Jesus. Even, even if all fall away, I will not. Even if the rest of these sorry, spineless, lousy excuses for disciples, you let hang around, the two of us fall away. Not me, Jesus. To which Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. And that just winds Peter up all the more. And he's like, no, no, Jesus, even if I have to die, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Now, shortly after this conversation, things get really wonky for Peter. Jesus takes Peter and the disciples and they're in the garden and Jesus is not okay. He is clearly distressed. He's trying to pray. The disciples are trying to stay awake and then Judas shows up with his mob in tow who he has brought to arrest Jesus. And at first it seems like, hey, it seems like everything's going to be fine. Jesus is completely in control. He speaks there on their butts. He's running the show. Then he just quits. He's just going to let them arrest him. And, and, and he's not going to let the disciples do anything to stop it. And it dawns on Peter. Like, everything he's been talking about, they're going to arrest Jesus. They're going to do unspeakable things to Jesus. They are going to crucify Jesus, and he isn't going to let us stop them. The, the, the disciples' whole world, it just gets turned upside down, and it's just like Jesus said. They strike the shepherd, and the sheep scatter. Ten guys go running for their lives. And Peter runs just like the rest of them. Now, after this initial reaction, Peter and John, they scrape up just enough courage between the two of them to follow Jesus and his captors to the house of the high priest. And when they get there, John knows somebody, and John gets them in. And there's this fire burning in the courtyard in the high priest's house. It's really important. There's a fire burning there, and it's cold out. And Peter's cold on the outside. He's cold on the inside. And so he gets close to the fire. At least he can warm the outside. And, and by the fire, he's got this vantage point where he can hear and he can see what's going on with Jesus as he's interrogated by the religious leaders. But, but as Peter's there by the fire, the questions start coming. People, they think they pick up on his accent, they think they recognize him, they think they've seen him. And so three times, they question Peter about his relationship with Jesus. They're all like, hey, you know this guy, you're one of his disciples. And, and Peter, 
Peter, he, he denies him. Peter, he says, I don't know what you're talking about. Still, they keep coming. They're just, no, 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 we saw you. You talk like one of those guys. You're one of his disciples, aren't you? And, and this time, Peter denies it again, but this time he does it with an oath. I don't know the man. Literally, Peter is saying, I swear to God, I don't know that man. But they're relentless. They can smell the fear. It's like sharks with a scent of blood in the water. And they just keep coming. And then finally, Peter denies it a third time. And, and he, it says that he cursed, called down curses on himself and swore to them, I don't know the man. Literally, Peter is saying, may God damn my soul to hell if I know that guy. And no sooner do the words get out of Peter's mouth than the rooster crows. And the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Here's Peter. I'd never run. Rested, oh, sorry, what, I'd never run. I'd never deny you. I would die before I deny you. As Jesus stands there broken and bleeding, Listen to a bunch of trumped-up charges. Listen to the religious leaders describe how they're going to snuff his life out. Peter denies him with every fiber of his being. And then Jesus makes eye contact with Peter. And Peter knows. Jesus saw it all. Jesus heard it all. And Luke tells us that that Peter went off and wept bitterly. Now let me tell you something about Peter. If you've ever done something that you've regretted, something you, you just look back and you're just ashamed, Peter knows exactly how you feel. If, if you've ever been tempted to let the past define who you are right now in the present, Peter knows exactly how you feel. If at some point in time you, you had this sense that God had called you to something and, and there was evidence in your life that you were gifted for that call and, and then you went places and you did things and you thought, oh, forget it. I, I, I can't do that anymore. Fishermen, whatever. Peter knows exactly how you feel. That's exactly where he was at as he left the high priest's home that night. John, he saw all this go down. He was there. Jesus saw all this go down. He was there. And in the miracle that we're going to look at here in John chapter 21, Jesus, in light of this, he tries to paint a picture of redemption and restoration for Peter. And John, he watches Jesus masterfully try and paint this picture, and he's like, I got to write that one down. 
Because maybe somebody's going to come after Peter who's going to need to hear this too. So chapter 21, it picks up sometime after everything in the courtyard of the high priest. Jesus has been resurrected. Peter has seen and interacted with Jesus on a number of occasions. Jesus has tried to get Peter to get over what took place in the courtyard. Peter's still wrestling with it. So much so that one day Peter's just like, you know, for fishermen, forget this. I'm, just, I'm a fisher of fish. That's what I do. I'm, I'm going fishing. And so he invites the other disciples, and they're like, we'll, we'll come too. And so they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. They fish all night long, and they got nothing to show for it. And, and as morning breaks on the sea that, 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 that day, there's this wise guy on the shore who calls out, Hey, did you catch anything? Peter calls back, No! Mind your own business. Shut up. Catch anything. Nobody asked you nothing, right? Guy won't let up. Well, well throw your nets over the right side of the boat, and then you'll get some. Thanks. Like we've only been fishing over the left side of the boat all night long. There's only left, you know, right fish, left fish. When you, ever, you know so much about fish, what are you doing on the shore instead out here? But for some inexplicable reason, they throw their nets over the right side of the boat. And when they do, the power of God intervenes in the natural course of how those fish would behave. And those fish in that lake are drawn to that net. Those, those fish are drawn to that net like college kids to free beer and pizza. I mean, it's just, just coming in droves, right? They catch fish. They catch fish till your nets are busted and call your partners over in their boats, fill both boats up until they're sinking kind of fish. And it dawns on John. Hey. We've done this before. <laughs> Peter, it's the Lord. And in that moment, all Peter wants is Jesus. Forget, forget the fish, forget the guys, forget the boats, forget my clothes. He just jumps in the water and swims to shore. Now, there on the shore, Jesus has set up this scene that's meant to help Peter interpret the miracle that's just taken place. There's this all-too-familiar scene waiting for Peter there on the shore. There's this charcoal fire burning there on the shore. Just like there's a fire that, that night there in the high priest's courtyard, there's a fire burning that morning. And Jesus, he, he lets Peter have something to eat. And then the questions come. Three times Jesus is question, Peter's questioned about his relationship to Jesus. Three times he denies him with every fiber of his being. Three times Jesus is going to question Peter that morning. Peter's first question from Jesus comes. and he's, 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 Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter, do you love me more than the fish? Do you love me more than the old life? Do you love me more than the rest of these other disciples love me? Now, the word that, that Jesus uses for love here, it's agape. It's a word meant to capture this idea of God's perfect love. God's high and lofty love. There was once a time you could ask Peter, do you love Jesus like this? 
And Peter had been quick to say, even more. It's not so quick now. Peter answers. He says, Lord, you know that I love you. Except he uses a different word for love. He uses for love. Lord, you know I love you like a brother. So Jesus says to him, okay, tend my lambs. Second time, Jesus questions Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you agape me? Do you love me with the high and lofty love of God? Second time, Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you like a brother. Okay, Jesus says, shepherd my sheep. Third time, Jesus questions Peter. He changes it up this time. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you follow me? Peter, do you even love me like a brother? I'm guessing after the garden and after the courtyard, that might have stung a little bit. All Peter can say is, Lord, you, you, you know all things. You know I love you like a brother. Okay, Jesus says, tend my sheep. Tend my sheep. John records all of this. The miracle and the scene that took place afterwards for a reason. But these were written that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. In this miracle with the fish and in the scene that takes place afterwards, John is trying to get Peter and anybody who would read this after Peter to see some things about who Jesus is. Now, there are more of them than we have time to talk about. So briefly, let me just share a few with you. Like, I, I would argue that John wants us to understand that in Jesus, we have a Messiah, we have a Son of God who pursues people relentlessly. Here's, here's Peter. He's, he's a wreck. And Jesus, P Peter's denied Jesus three times. Jesus lets Peter reaffirm his love for him three times. Except Jesus doesn't just let Peter do that. No, Jesus orchestrates this whole thing. It's not like Peter just came up and said, hey, I, like, I need to have this conversation. No, Jesus sets this miracle up and this conversation up, and there's all this deja vu going on here. Jesus sets this whole thing up in an effort to pursue Peter. The resurrection takes place, and multiple times Jesus seeks to restore Peter. Peter just isn't getting it, and Jesus' heart just won't stop coming after Peter. He is going to pursue him relentlessly. Or in Jesus, we have one who invites us into a deeper love, even when our love falters. Like, like Peter's thinking, okay, my failure, my love for Jesus, these are, you know, they're not mutually exclusive. I, like I, I, there's no way to reconcile this. I told him I wouldn't run. I ran like crazy. Told him I wouldn't deny him. I took that to a whole nother level. How can I say I love him after where I have been and what I have done? And Jesus is like, no, 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 Peter. Yeah, you didn't love me as much as you thought you did. You didn't love me as much as you could have. 
You didn't love me maybe even as much as you should have. But that doesn't mean you didn't love me at all. Let me set up this context where you can reaffirm your love for me. And yeah, it's going to be a humbler love. And yeah, it's going to be probably a bit more introspective. But there's this invitation where your love is faltered to enter into a new and deeper kind of love and move towards a kind of love that maybe you should have had in the first place. Or in Jesus, we, we see someone who calls us to serve even after we fail. Three times, Peter blows it. Swears to God, calls down damnation on himself in an effort to separate himself from Jesus. And yet three times, Jesus reaffirms his call to serve. Feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. Peter's thinking, after what I have done, it's over. All I'm good for now is just to fish for fish. And there's this level of grace and patience and stick to perseverance that Jesus has for Peter. He's like, no, no, no. Yeah, you've blown it and you've blown it and you've blown it, but I am still calling you to serve. In fact, Jesus ups the ante. Before it was, hey, you're, you're going to fish for people. Now you're going you're gonna to feed, you're going to care for my sheep. Not only are you going to help them come into a relationship with me, but you're going to help them grow in that relationship once they get there. Because Jesus, he keeps coming. He, he's, he's still calling Peter into his calling giftedness even after Peter has failed. And finally in Jesus, we see one who believes in us no matter what. After, after they get done with their conversation, Jesus says these words to Peter. He says, as for you, you follow me. Again, th this is first century rabbinic code. This is the way a rabbi says to, to, to a young man, hey, I want you for my disciple. I believe you have what it takes to be like me. Even after everything Peter had said, after everything Peter had done, after all the ways that he had failed, Jesus still believed that Peter had what it take to be like him. So he invites him, come on. Even now, you come follow me. John writes these things down because he's trying to get us to see this is the heart of Jesus for you. No matter where you have been, no matter what you have done, God is pursuing you. If you're listening to this in person, you're listening to this online, you're like, man, God gave up on me. No. He is pursuing you relentlessly. He is calling you into a deeper love. Even if yours is faltered. There are gifts and a calling on your life that have not changed in light of your failure. And you may have quit believing in you a long time ago, but he never stopped. Come on. You come and follow me. This is the Jesus John is trying to get us to see. Stand with me, church.
Father. Thank you for your spirit that inspired John to write these things down. To try and open our minds to who Jesus is and how life can work if he's part of the equation. Father, for some of us, we just need to come and fall down at the feet of Jesus and find the redemption and the forgiveness that he came to bring. Others of us, we just need to be reminded this is, this is our Lord. This is the Jesus we follow. This is the Jesus we're trying to emulate to others. Have mercy. Help us, please. It's in his name that we